Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Today, I have a special music episode with bassist Rudy Sarzo. You know Rudy. He's played with Ozzy, Quiet Riot, White Snake, Dio, Blue Oyster Cult, and many, many other bands and talented musicians. And in addition, Rudy is the author of the book Off the Rails, which chronicles his time with Randy Rhodes during their Quiet Riot and Aussie years, and you can find that on Amazon. He also happens to be an animal rights activist, a CG artist, and he lives in LA with his beautiful wife, his cute dog, and happens to be one of the nicest, most humble rock stars I've ever met. Welcome, Rudy. Hi, Michelle. How you been? I've been well. How about yourself? I've been terrific. terrific. Still out in Woodland Hills? Yep, still out here. <laughs> All right. I remember one time I was walking up the street and uh, you were cutting your hedges, and I was like, Rudy the rock star cuts his own hedges? Oh, my God, yeah, I, ju- I just did, actually. Uh, <laughs> really? Actually, it takes me two days to do that. Actually, it, uh, not just two days, but two trash days because, uh, you know, the uh, the green can gets really filled up. Yeah. Then I have to wait for the truck to pick it up. Then the next day I, I'm back at it again. So, yeah. yeah <laughs> well, that's because so. you have so many hedges. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Why and, don't you hire somebody? You know what? I don't know if you ever had this experience, but you know, being a homeowner, when you're on the road, you miss you. You you're like, okay, I I I have a beautiful home, got a beautiful wife, I got you know my puppy, mm-hmm. but I'm out here on the road. I'm not enjoying it. You know, I'm in, sitting in some hotel. And then when you're sitting in the hotel, you you know, I make a list of things that I need to do once I get back home. And to me, it's really rewarding, you know, the reward of being, you know, the sacrifice of being away from my family. I finally get home and I do home stuff, family stuff. Now, anything that is inside the house that you need a key to get in to the gates, I take care of that. Okay. Just because I don't like to give a key to anybody. Yeah. They'll be like pulling out your bass. You'll come in and the cleaning lady will be playing your bass. <laughs> no cleaning lady neither. I've never had a cleaning lady. Yeah. Never had. I've never had. Well, that's pretty cool that like this big rock star, you know, he longs for home and he actually likes to do his own work around the house. Well, I want you to share with me and with the listeners more about Rudy, where you come from, um, what got you interested in music the early years. Now, you were you were born in Havana, right? Yes, I was born in Havana, and uh, pre uh, pre revolution, pre Castro revolution, nineteen fifty. Wow. So uh, you know, so uh, to me, when when I put that into perspective, is uh, you know we had a lot of uh, American influences in our culture, you know, and a lot of it ha- was music. You know, we had our Cuban music, but also and uh, TV shows. We even had. Uh, uh, our own version of, of, of rock stars in Cuba, you know, back then. You know. Tell me one. <clears throat> well, you know, there was a, a couple of uh, musicians, uh, Luis Bravo, Luis Aguilé. Mm. Uh, they used to do like uh, uh, basically rock in Espanol, you know, back yeah. in the 50s. And, uh, and a lot of the Latin countries did that. You know, Mexico had their own version of rock in Espanol. And, 
And uh, so did other countries in South America before it became politically incorrect to do that because, of course, rock and roll always becomes the voice sure. of, of the young generation, you know, mm-hmm. and that want to see change politically and especially uh, Latin American countries, uh, you know, they don't like that, you know, they like the uh, the government to to have the final say of, right you know, especially and i'm talking you know 60 70 years ago you know or 60 years ago yeah you know when when rock and roll first started you know if you consider like 1955 kind of like the pivot point mm-hmm. of of for rock and roll you know becoming part of a part of a of a global scene you right know? So you were a young boy here in this cool rock in Espanol. Were your parents supportive of your interest in rock? They just saw it as entertainment. My interest in rock really got, you know, cemented when I when my family moved to to the United States, you know, in 1961. Basically, because they were taking kids uh, they, uh, uh, away from the families and sending them to to Russia. It was called Little Pioneers Program, Pioneritos, in a, as exchange for other people to come in from Russia, you know, basically military and economics, you know, uh, advisors, basically, yeah, like, like they put it. So we arrived in between the Bay of Pigs and the Missile Crisis. Oh my gosh. Yeah, right in between. That had to be scary. Well, being in Miami and, and, and seeing the uh, the movement of troops, you know, down Flagler, you know, heading down towards the Keys, it was really a crisis. You know, there were nuclear yeah. missiles, you know, in Cuba pointing at the United States. Right. Uh, my family, it, t- it took us about a year, year and a half to get all the paperwork, visas, passports. Uh, you had to have a sponsor in the United States to get you a, a visa to enter the country. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, certain restrictions that were put by, by the new government, you know, the Castro government in Cuba. So, you know, we came to the United States legally. You know, we, we, took, we boarded a Pan American flight and we landed in Miami. And then when we landed in Miami, we asked for political asylum. Basically, uh, we became Cuban refugee status. But still, you know, we, we had a destination. We had people that that had claimed us, wow. you know, from Miami. And we went and stayed with them. And then, you know, my family, uh, my dad got, got a job and we moved out. And, you know, and, and here we are. And at some point, we got relocated to New Jersey. That was 1963. So oh, wow. Yeah, well, there were there were not enough uh, jobs in in Miami to actually support the new flow of Cubans mm-hmm. coming into the country. So you know, Miami, nineteen sixty one, was basically just a tourist town. You know, it wasn't populated like like it is right now with all the high rises and you know a Latin American uh, center mm-hmm. port. So as a young boy, you're experiencing all these crazy changes. And mm-hmm. so is that why you picked up the bass? No. <laughs> okay. No. So so how does the bass guitar come into play? Yeah. Uh that's a really good question. And 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 what happened was we had been relocated from Miami to New Jersey. The country was at a funk, you know, at a low right after Kennedy was shot in 1963. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was really a dark period. And, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, 
uh, Christmas, New Year's, it was all like, oh my God, this is horrible. You know, nobody was really celebrating, you know. And and then along comes the Beatles, 1964 at Sullivan, you know, February. And that was kind of like, you know, a breath of fresh air just because it was it was it was a distraction, I guess, and in mass hysteria. And of course, you know, you you look back at it and say, wow, yeah, these guys were really cool. Yeah, We, we weren't totally nuts or crazy to to really you know be affected by this it was something something magical about about mm-hmm. that band that i don't think anybody else has even come close to capturing you know beatlemania mm-hmm. beatlemania was yeah, that's not that's not been anything since that you know michael jackson got a club got pretty close yeah but michael jackson was a slow burn you know what i'm saying is you know the impact of the beatles was, was, was like, boom inst- yeah it was exactly it was like a like an explosion the, the Jackson Five was was a was, you know he was built from the Jackson Five was like a cute little kid that that sang his his butt off mm-hmm. and then turned to Michael Jackson the solo artist yeah you know so yeah you know it had a cultural impact but the Beatles on Ed Sullivan show as far as what what he meant to the nation and to the youth it, it was it was an impact especially at that time you know where there was no other distractions right you were looking for something. You were looking for something. Yeah, it was like the family sat on frontal TV on Sunday night to watch Ed Sullivan, which you were watching comedians, you know, like Bob Newhart, whoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would watch dancing poodles, <laughs> <laughs> or 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 the uh, or the Russian ballet, right. or or right. some opera singer, and then here's the Beatles, or on top of Gijo, of course, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it was it was a a family affair, and to actually. All of a sudden, you know, everybody was sitting there in, in their TV dinner trays, eating whatever. <sighs> wow. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody was united. And then all of a sudden, you got the Beatles. And that's, that's where, well, wait a minute. You identify with the Beatles as a, as a teenager or a kid. I Heck mean, yeah. Was, yeah, I was 13. I had just turned, you know, I, became, I turned 13 in 1963. Mm-hmm. So you were like, I'm going to be a rock star. I want that. Well, what I wanted was... The adulation from the female fans. <laughs> of course, That's as a thirteen-year-old boy, thirteen-year-old fat little kid, the thirteen-year-old <laughs> fat, fat little kid. Uh, oh yes, I was. Well, trust me, I was like, yeah. At sixteen, I was two hundred pounds, so I was no uh, kidding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, well, nineteen fifties diet. Everything you know, my mom cooked back uh, then. The meat, meat, and meat, meat and potatoes, meat and potatoes. No, it was the lard. Oh, ooh, yeah. We, we used to cook with, uh, my mom used to cook with animal fat. I mean, you know, a lot of people did back then. Sure, my grandmother and, did, yep, yeah, yep. And a lot of rice in our diet, you know, Latin diet and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of food. Food is love. So when, you don't, when, you're, when you're a refugee and you don't have a whole lot of, lot of money, or at least, you know, the same lifestyles my parents had back in Cuba, pre-Castro, you know, they had to make up for it somehow. So sure. food became love. Wow. You know? wow. So so anyways, getting back to, back to the Beatles, it was just a matter of uh, I want, you know, I don't want to be invisible anymore, which I was as a fat little kid, not only fat, but also a an immigrant. I could barely speak English. I was an outcast. So were you bullied? Uh, or did you just feel like shy because you everybody weren't? Everybody was bullied back then. Yeah. Because, you know, it was just... A it way just wasn't of, talked about. It wasn't talked about. And it was, I mean, when my mom, when when we were bullied and my mom actually witnessed it, all, all, she, all she did was like say, stand up for it. Don't back down. Mm-hmm. 
and she encouraged me to, you know, to fight if I had to. Mm-hmm. You know, so which is a huge controversy now. Everybody's like, "Oh, you shouldn't tell the kids to fight back, whatever, whatever." But I don't even want to go down that road. I don't want to go down there. All I can tell you is that ever since my mom raised me like that, I never back down. Mm-hmm. And 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 I've been through so many adversities in life, and that always comes up. You know, you you have to fight. You yeah. know, life. You know, no matter where you are in your life, you know, there's always going to be battles. Sure. And if you back down from every single battle, whether it's cultural, social, financial, uh, you know, whatever, if you stand for something, at some point, somebody's going to try to take it away from you or, or destroy it. Mm-hmm. And you've got to fight for it. Yep. You know, and to me, a life well lived is finding that thing or, that, or those things that you live for and you fight for. Heck Yeah. Yeah, you have to find a way to survive. And by that is you, you have to fight for it every single day. And you've got to fight for your own place in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still do. Oh, my God. I, I you kidding? Every day I start and I st- it's like starting all over again. I feel you. I need that coffee or else nothing's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, with me as my uh, espresso. Uh, oh, you're more fancy than I am. Well, <laughs> I, just... I, I have a coffee bean and tea leaf uh, machine. And I just put in the pods, and it's like getting, it's like going to the store. Nice. Yeah. It was like you, it's yeah, wonderful. You right. got to clean that too. Yeah, that'll be yeah. part of your cleaning list. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you know, once I have the coffee and I, and I, I I pick up the base and. I, Did you ever take lessons when you were a kid? I do now. <laughs> so you just kind of learned by just picking it up and doing it. Well, no. And yeah, no, really, I, I, I studied music in, in college. Okay. But see, the, the point is that, that you studied music, but it wasn't exactly the music that I was playing. You know, I would be studying music, you know, uh, let's say music theory and sight reading in college. And then at night I would be playing the bars. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sight reading in the bars. I was just playing, you know, what, what, whatever top forty or dance music or or, or R and B. Okay, popular in the day. So you were playing. You're playing kind of like we're already in the seventies now. So you're oh, playing late sixties. Yes, yeah, late sixties. So early seventies. So it's kind of like sixty nine. Yeah. Soulful. Yeah, it was like yeah. definitely R and B. Yeah, I, and I was playing the same circuit, you know, in Miami as, as Jaco Pastorius, which was really firing yeah. and, and 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 scary at the same time, you know. Heck yeah! But, you know, you know, I I looked at somebody like Jaco, and I thought, well, there's gonna be a thousand guys like this, not realizing that he was the only Jaco there was. <laughs> you know, but, but <laughs> so, were you that. friends with him? Uh, no, no, but I did hang out. We, I was in the same circuit as Will Lee, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who of the David Letterman, you know, he, he had that gig from, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And, um, his dad was the, uh, the Dean of music at the university of Miami. I mean, so this guy was not only getting an education, but he was rubbing shoulders with, you know, the likes of Jacko and Steve Bailey and all these great musicians that came out mm-hmm. of uh, So out you of went back down to Miami for college. Oh, what what, what happened was in back, uh, like around 1967, my, my family moved down uh, from New Jersey. Uh, you know, but my, my mom basically, or, and my dad, I mean, we, we, we just couldn't take the winters anymore <laughs> in New Jersey. Yeah. 
So I understand. We, yeah, so we got in the in my <clears throat> my family's Corvair and drove down from New Jersey back down to Miami. Nice. And, and I was there from '67 on. Mm-hmm. So you're playing in bars. You're back in Miami again, and it, it sounds like you were playing a lot of R and B. How did you land on metal? Once disco hit Miami, because you know, even though I was playing R and B, I was also playing you know. Uh, Deep Purple and The Who and Led Zeppelin because it was on the radio. My my taste in music leaned more towards blues-based rock and roll or heavy metal, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, Deep Purple had songs on the radio, so did The Who and yeah. and Led Zeppelin and so on. So yes, you 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 could go into a, you know be a bar band and play and play rock. Isn't it cool now that you know all of those guys? And play with some of them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. were just, you know, this college kid playing in bars and playing their music, and now you're buddies. <laughs> yeah. Or, or bandmates, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's really a blessing, you know, to be able to do that. But it's, it was also my, my knowledge of the music, you know, that style that actually allowed me the privilege to play with those musicians. Mm. You know, it wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, a lot of the music was alien to me or I didn't even know or appreciate it. Of course I did, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, so what happened was once disco came in and like in 1974, 75 to the Miami scene, uh, you were basically prohibited from playing rock music. You know, all of the, uh, the, bar owners they just give you a list and say these are the songs you're going to play and in some of the places yes uh, like there was a chain of bars called big daddy's lounge which was very organized it was one central character that was not only the booker but also you know the uh dictated what songs you were going to play and what to wear, and all of a sudden, what? wear uniforms. You know, it was like there was a dress code. Basically. Wow. Yeah, so it was like you know what, time to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, you know, because what was it? Leisure suits. Uh, yeah, seventies leisure suits, and you know, platform so, shoes. Well, you know, boogie nights, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, but one of the things that you have to consider is that Miami was really an by then an extension. Of New York, mm-hmm. anything happened in New York City, it reflected culturally in in Miami, South Beach. Mm-hmm. You know, because there was oh because of the snowbirds, right? They just travel up and down. You know, when when winter came, they will come down to uh, to Miami mm-hmm. to winter, and then they will go back to uh, to New York City after that. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the summertime. So musically and socially, culturally. It was purely a, a reflection, you know, disco, disco becoming the right. the sound of Miami. So I just, I left, I packed up and went and, and went actually upstate New York. And we based ourselves out of Utica. And then after that, I just traveled, traveled west just because, you know, there was, I was heading towards LA and via Chicago. And eventually, in 1976, I arrived in, in Los Angeles. Wasn't that when that whole revolution was happening where, like, they were like, disco is dead and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. But after disco died, what came in was punk. Punk mm-hmm. and new wave. Mm-hmm. And by the time that I joined Quiet Riot in 78, 
and uh, that's that was my my connection to Ozzy, having played with Randy Rhodes in Quiet Riot, locally in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we were beating our heads against the wall by 1978, 79, because what was happening was new wave and punk, something that the Quiet Riot was was pretty uh, distant from because yeah. our, our musical influences were basically glam rock. Yeah. You know, uh, anything from Queen or Mata Hoople and David Bowie and yeah. stuff like that. How did you How did you get into Quiet Riot? I auditioned. Really? Yeah, I auditioned. I, I, I did get, you just I, see a flyer somewhere like on the Sunset Strip or what? No, I was actually out of town when I got the call. I was in back in New Jersey because my brother got married. Uh, 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 most of the time we have been playing together, my brother Robert and me. Mm-hmm. And then he got married, settled down. You know, he he was still playing music, but you know, he was he was uh, putting bands together with his wife, uh, who was the keyboard player, Susie. And um, so I I figured, well, you know what? Let me. That's when I I I left New Jersey, went to L.A. Well, actually went to Chicago, played around Chicago, and with some of the guys that I was playing with in the band in Chicago, we drove to Los Angeles. We put a band together there. The band broke up. I, need, I needed to make some money quick. And uh, so I went back to to New Jersey to work with, with my brother and his wife's band. Hmm. When I was in L.A., everything to me was centered around the Sunset Strip. Yep. You know, you know even before I joined Choir Riot, it was all about the Sunset Strip. I didn't even know that there were bands and musicians making a living in in orange county playing playing cover bands yeah. i didn't even know that existed and even if it did i didn't have the means to travel down there and to me it was do or die that's probably uh, a, a blessing though that you didn't have the money to go to orange county <laughs> no offense to the orange county people no i know but but i didn't even know it existed all that my world i had no car no transportation i was you know it was a bunch of guys living in one apartment you know this is pre-quiet riot. Yeah. And and it was like... I love it. Yeah, you know, we are here to get a record deal and we're not going to be playing in a cover band. What was the that, name of the band that you had? Uh, we did one show under the name Scarab. Scarab. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, Frankie Benelli was our drummer. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. We were living together and uh, a produ- now a, a well-known producer named Bob Marlette mm-hmm. was our keyboard player. And uh, these these are the guys that I was playing with in the Chicago area before we move it. We probably moved to New uh, back to LA, mm-hmm. you know. And so that band broke up, and I, like I mentioned, I went I went to uh, New Jersey to play with my brother, got some money together. And as I was getting ready to move back to LA, I got the phone call from Kevin Dubrow, who I had met briefly when when I first saw Quiet Riot perform at the Starwood. Where's the Starwood? It was on Santa Monica and Crescent Heights, hmm. right on the corner. Okay. Now it's a it's a a, a, a mini mall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that was like you know that was one of the very few places where uh, the Starwood you could be underage and go to the disco, which was one section of of the Starwood, uh-huh. and you were like a like a like a band, they yeah. gave you like, like a wristband yeah. that means that no alcohol for you. Yeah. And then the other side was actually for 
to watch bands, live bands perform. <laughs> and everybody played there. I mean, even, you know, recording artists played there. And that was kind of like a choir wire was kind of like a, the uh, house band. Hmm. I mean, there were a few house bands, you know, but, you know, once a month, at least we will play uh, the whole weekend, mm -hmm. you know, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, two shows a night, you know, and we use that place as a, a, a showcase. What happened was while I was away in New Jersey, they were auditioning bass players and they didn't find who they thought they, they were looking for. And people kept saying, yeah, you should call Rudy. He's out of town, but 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 he's coming back. And and so he called me. He called, I was in New Jersey, you know, a, a few days within me returning to L.A. Mm -hmm. And I told him, yeah, I'll I'll be there. I'll be there uh, next week or whatever. And I, I, I called them as, as, as soon as I got back into town and they arranged an audition and I passed the audition. And I got the gig as the new uh, Choir Riot bass player. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love how it was within a few days. I feel like everything happens purposefully in the universe you know what i mean like you were yeah, just about to come back it was awesome yeah. so then you're in quiet right you're playing this place called the starwood yes. at santa monica and crescent heights yeah. and you get to know randy rhodes how you know i just joined this new band quiet riot and uh, we used to rehearse every single day and we would get together in the evening uh, at a rehearsal place in burbank and we would go through the set forwards and backwards and then work any new material that we were going to be trying out. Because, you know, we were we were trying to get a record deal. We weren't a cover band. Yeah. Right. But we weren't getting a record deal at all, you know. And it, it seemed like the, the more we tried, the harder we tried, the more re rejection we got. And we were chasing our tails because record companies were saying, okay, well, if you... If you come up with a song like "Do You Think I'm Sexy," you know, <laughs> bring it over and 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 we'll talk a demo deal or something. So mm -hmm. we're going to write a song like "Do You Think I'm Sexy." Uh, for those of you listening out there and curious, which one it was? It, it was the uh, song called "One in a Million." That was our attempt at disco Rod Stewart kind of a song, yeah. and and you can find that on YouTube, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, and then we'll come back, and by that by then that song will be off the charts. Oh well, if you come up with this other song, like my Sharona, will you get you know whatever? It's still know? like that today in the industry. I feel like you know. Yeah, it is. It nothing out there ever changed. Well, especially it, the changes were slower back then, because there was no, you know if something was going on bubbling in the UK, you know people you know the record companies in LA had no idea. Mm -hmm. Unless you happen to have, you know somebody from the UK division, right? call them up and say, hey, you know, we got this new band called The Clash or, or Sex Pistols, and, you know, you better release them, you know, mm -hmm. in the U.S., you know, because they're going to be touring there, you know, whatever. But nowadays is YouTube. You know, you can find out immediately what's going on totally. in the U.K. by going to YouTube and going to certain websites that do cater to exposing new music around the world, you know. Mm -hmm. But back then, I had we had no idea. So... So we were banging our heads against the wall, you know, and then all of a sudden Ozzy Osbourne gets fired from Black Sabbath. He comes into L.A. looking for musicians. And on the very last attempt, you know, uh, this bass player who was also trying to get a gig with Ozzy, Dana Strum, recommends Randy Rhodes. And Randy Rhodes really did not want to go and check out Ozzy because he had never he had never been on the road. He had never left L.A. He was living with his mom teaching hours uh you know about 10 hours a day 
every day uh, at his mom's school, Musonia, which is still Aww. around. Yeah. At the time that he got the call to join Ozzy, I was also teaching at Musonia with Randy, which is where I got to spend Ah, uh, so you got close. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got really close with him, you know, teaching at school. And uh, so he gets the call, auditions, gets the gig, and he leaves town, you know. So he goes to England, he makes a couple of records with Ozzy, and, and by the time they're ready to tour the States for the first album, Blizzard of Oz, they they replaced the uh, the original drummer Lee Kerslake with Tommy Aldridge, and they were looking for a bass player to replace Bob Daisley. And they actually called me. Sharon calls me up, you know, the first day. And by then, I was already playing in a band called Angel. Even though we didn't have a record deal, it was a band that I really dug, and I I, I dug the guys and everything. So, you know, I, I had a commitment. So I get this call out of the blue. Even and I was I was staying with Kevin Dubrow in his apartment in, in the valley mm-hmm. of Coldwater Canyon and Riverside. And wow, that's and, uber close to where I live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I got the call from Sharon and she, and she, she tells me, Oh, Randy says, you know, recommends you to come down and audition. I said, Oh, thank you. But I'm already in the band. So she, she abruptly hung up the phone. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, you know, it's, she it's, just it's, hung up on you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, how dare you? You know, kind right? Of like, like oh, which is fine. You know, I, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't even think about it when she called me about the fact that I was going to have an opportunity to play with Randy again. Yes, you know, right? You know, and it was like I, I was just shooting from the hip. A lot of times, you know, you do, you know, you just honest and say, "Oh, sure. thank you," but you know, I'm, I'm happy with the band that I'm in, and I'm committed, and so on. So, you know, she had to find, you know. She had to find a bass player. She didn't have time for chit chat. <laughs> Basically, just hang up and go. Yeah. And make okay, bongo, okay. You know? Next, next. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, next. Well, yeah. You know, so I hang up the phone, and Kevin says, Who was that? And I say, Oh, it's Sharon. She's Ozzy's manager, and blah, blah, blah. And, and she, so he starts yelling at me, Are You crazy? <laughs> you turned down an audition with, with Ozzy so you could play with Randy, and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, by then I was like, Oh, God, he's right. What a mistake. <laughs> you know? So, so I meditated on it, and. And I thought, well, I'll never make that mistake again, uh, not knowing that I was going to get a call from Ozzy the next day oh. himself, you know, say, oh, you know, uh, hi, this is Ozzy. And listen, you know, Randy tells me that, 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 you're, that you're the guy and and uh, we've auditioned a bunch of bass players and, we, you know, we want you to come down on an audition and say, and by then I was like, okay, yeah. Cool. Now, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm there. So actually, as you go, so listen, uh, you know, we're going to audition you two tonight, but we want to meet you first. And so so he arranges to have uh, Randy pick me up that evening and meet Ozzy and Sharon and and Tommy Aldrich over at, a, uh, at, at Trader Vic's, which used to be at the uh, at the Hilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the Hilton. Right on. I, I remember that Monica. place, actually. Yeah. 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 And so we go there and, you know, they're checking me out. And Ozzy was, like, very cordial. You know, he says, man, you know, I... All I need for you is to just be able to play, you know, just and you know, you know they were like less less than two weeks away from starting a, a, a world, you know, tour with Ozzy. Oh and then they have a bass player. You're just you know? chilling out at, at the Beverly Hilton. So you had a lot yeah. of material to learn, I imagine. Well, first I had to learn two songs so I could audition the next day, you know. So Randy knowing that I really didn't have time. And it's not like like nowadays you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll send you a couple of links on YouTube and you learn these songs and, you know, and there you go. It mm-hmm. was like, 
never heard the record. I don't have material. So Randy just came over with the songs and say, okay, let's go over these two two songs. You know, it was a, a crazy train and I don't know. Wow. And he basically taught me the songs because I didn't have time. It wasn't like, you know, I only had like an hour, you know, from oh the time that, that he came over, picked me up, and then we would have to like go and, and audition, you know. Wow. So it was like, okay, well, here we go. So, uh, so you know, that made it possible. Randy I, was I, like a brother from another mother. Oh, yeah. Oh, he, well, he, he was more than that, you know, uh, way more. And um, so anyway, so, yeah, I, I, I went in. And they, and there were some bass players waiting to audition. So I was the first guy up there and played the songs. Anybody That's, of note that you that you won the gig over? over? Uh, I have no idea because all I was doing, I was just concentrating on, on, on getting the gig. Okay. That was it. I wasn't socializing, chit-chatting, you right, know, right. anything. I was just like... You just, you always hear those stories of like, oh yeah, you know, Jocko was there waiting in line and I got the gig, <laughs> you know? No, no, Jocko was busy with weather report, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, um, so, yeah, so we go in, we do the song without Ozzy, he's watching us play, and then he gets up on stage, he sings the song again, I don't know, and then he goes over to the outside with Sharon, comes back and, and, and turns to me and says, so, you want the gig? <laughs> and I say, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Sharon turns over to the people that were waiting and they goes, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming. But we already found a bass player. And, wow. And that was it. So from that morning on, you know, that I woke up in Kevin DeBro's apartment sleeping on a floor, I was whisked away in Randy's car over to go to to Sharon's family's home in uh, up in Benedict Canyon. It was a house that was built by Howard Hughes mm. for for one of his uh, actress girlfriends. You know? <laughs> wow. Beautiful, beautiful mansion, beautiful mansion. Jane Russell, Jane Russell. Wow, okay. Person, but it was owned, owned by Howard Hughes. Uh, this, there is a, and I still I believe that there still is, probably even stronger now. A circle of trust around the Aussie camp, and when I say Aussie, I always include Sharon because he, to me they're they're one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. So, so uh, even from the very beginning, you know, it was kind of like these two entities rolling to one. You know, even though at the time Aussie was married to somebody else, and 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 Sharon were, you know, <laughs> they they weren't really a couple yet, but but it was kind of like this 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 entity you know that existed you know so trust trust was such a, it always is an important factor but even becomes more important when your time is limited to let the trust factor grow so you have to rely on other people's trust so ozzy and sharon trusted randy because you know he had been with them for about two years now mm -hmm. you know living working with randy and and and, and building that trust factor right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to me that's that that's that's where the trinity was it was randy ozzy and sharon that was it that was the triangle right there mm -hmm. and uh later you know tommy joined the band and of course you know tommy had been around with other bands such as black oak and pet travers and so on so he had a resume See, you know, his trust factor was very, very, very solid because, you know, he had been, people knew his background. They have toured, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Ozzy had toured in, with Black Sabbath and, 
and Black Oak, Arkansas. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so they knew each other. So, yeah. so you know what I mean? So, you so know you're what saying to, that you had to spend some time gaining trust. Yes, gaining their trust. Now, Randy already trusted me. Sure. Because we all worked together and he mm-hmm. knew my, my work ethics and and, uh, and everything that I brought with me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, not being an alcoholic, not being a drug addict, you know, being somebody you can you can depend, count on and, and so on. Somebody right. who's going to work hard. And Which is important when the lead singer has all those issues, I guess. <laughs> well, right. it wasn't... It wasn't about, it didn't matter what Ozzy did or didn't do. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, we're going to be bringing this guy in. Right. Who is he? Well, according to Randy, he is this guy. Okay, that's all that went, you know, that's all that went on. Randy trusting me. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it, you know, there was a, a bunch of guys that can really play out there. But those guys didn't have the trust factor. So it was tough to get into this circle and to gain their trust. And then it almost sounds like it was like a little kind of click, you know, like you were brought into the fold. So now. No, it wasn't a click. It was a family. Mm. A click is something to me. A click is is it's social. I had to be able to play if I didn't have certain attributes about me already built in. Right. In addition to the trust factor. I would have gone, I would have been invisible. You know, I would have not had the career that that I had later on because people were, would have not even noticed me. But the fact that I was on stage with these mystical giants mm-hmm. and, and, and could still, you know. Hold your own. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Be at, at that level or be inspired by them and learn from them as my mentors to reach that level. That was also in addition to the trust factor. Was what was the most challenging part of this experience for you? Was it maintaining that focus, that concentration, becoming part of the family? What was what was the toughest part? Toughest part was adaptation, adapting myself. I mean, I was filling some really huge shoes. Uh, Bob Daisley is a phenomenal bass player, and his uh, contribution to Ozzy mm-hmm. is is paramount. You know, as a writer and and as a and as a as a musician, as a bass player, so it wasn't just me learning the parts that Bob Daisley played. It was adapting because now we got a different drummer, and he's and he's not playing exactly what's on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, when when you get Tommy Aldridge in the band, you got Tommy Aldridge. He's gonna play it the way Tommy Aldridge would play it. <laughs> yeah. He's not going to sit around trying to be, you know, oh, I'm going to play the the, ba- the drum parts from this other drummer. No, you get Tommy. So it was kind of like, okay, if I play exactly what's on the record, it's not going to sync with what Tommy's playing. So it was finding, fine-tuning and, ad- and adapting what the bass part was to locking in with Tommy, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest challenge and still retaining the essence of what the song was all about. Mm-hmm. What was the craziest thing that ever happened on the road with Ozzy? Oh my God. It's about, it's in, in about 300 plus pages of my book. <laughs> Can you give us and, the and that's notes? The reason, that's the reason why, why, why I wrote the book. No, because if, if, if I tell you about biting the head of the bat <laughs> on stage, it, then, then it's, it, it's not any, any crazier than pissing on Ozzy pissing on the Alamo. Oh you yeah. Know? So if I can't pick one over the other, so you have to like. How did you both. not get wrapped into all the craziness? How did you stay on your own path, not doing drugs, not because drinking? He, 
because you have to remain true to yourself. And mo the most important aspect of, of this whole thing was my my spiritual center was really defined by the time that I got the call. As a matter of fact, when, when I, I wrote in, in chapter two of the book, uh, it was not long after that I found my I had that epiphany, my spiritual epiphany, while 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 sleeping on the floor, that I made peace with with God. Mm. You know, here I am sleeping on the floor. I just finished reading both the 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 old and the New Testament, and I, I would say I, I spiritually I was at my not my peak, but that what you reach that moment. That you know that that your spirituality cannot be tested. Mm. Well, I mean, of course, it's tested every single day, but it cannot be broken. Uh, it, it cannot be a, a detour. It cannot be the path. Cannot be. I cannot go. And it, it, once I found that strength, I cannot let go of it, or it will not let me go. That's amazing because you were a young man, and that's something well, that generally takes people many, many years to well, cultivate really, that kind of strength. I, you know, I, I had just turned thirty. I wasn't really that young. Yeah, but nowadays, thirty-year-olds are are like twenty-year-olds. You know, you know, fifty yeah. is the new thirty, Rudy. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. No, no, no. You're right, but you know when. I was really on my own, and and there's no better place to discover yourself than when you're really on your own. You're not. You don't have the responsibilities that of 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 your family. You know, you're. It's just you. You and a self discovery. That's it. And 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 I I didn't want to drag anybody else through the trials and tribulations. I was prepared to to to. Uh, to put myself through in order to to reach where I wanted to go. And so by the time that I started playing with Ozzy, I which was basically within days of of making peace with God that if I that as long as my fingers were gonna keep moving, I was gonna keep playing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all about being a musician. That's all and making a living at it. Mm -hmm. And so I made peace and say, if as long as my fingers keep moving, I'm going, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep trying. But if I don't, that's fine. That's wow. fine. Wow, it was let that it go. letting go. Letting go. Yeah. Letting go. That's amazing. And what a great place to segue onto part two. Rudy, thank you so much for taking time today. We will continue this discussion and uh, learn more about uh, later years and uh, what's next for Rudy Sarzo. I'm looking forward to coming back on the show, Michelle. Thank you so much, my friend. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.